So we're back in Proverbs tonight. Proverbs 18 and 19, a lot of content in there, a lot of great, a lot of great stuff. The, the, the themes that we're going to really kind of dial in on tonight, there's, there's this idea, it starts out right away with this idol of self, the idol of selfishness. We'll kind of maybe touch a little bit on laziness. That's something that is brought out in these two chapters. Something that's brought out a lot in Proverbs. Solomon has a lot to say about that. We'll see some Proverbs that deal with wealth as opposed to poverty. And some Proverbs that deal with our words, our heart, issues of justice and righteousness. And again, these... these um, Proverbs, these themes are through pretty much every single chapter. I'm not going to hit on every single proverb every week. I'm just encouraging you guys to dig into these chapters yourself and perhaps find a proverb in here that speaks to you personally and, and that, you can, uh, that you can hang on to for the day or for the week. Or, and I think that's kind of how they're written. Let me read the first th uh, three verses out of chapter 18. And this is an interesting... Um, Interesting group of verses here. Whoever isolates himself seeks his own desire. He breaks out against all sound judgment. A fool takes no pleasure in understanding, but only in expressing his opinion. When wickedness comes, contempt comes also, and with dishonor comes disgrace. We see a lot of words in there. Himself, his own his own opinion, his own desire. We see someone here who is isolated, whose desires and opinions are preeminent, who is at war with others, who is violent in their response to wisdom and the truth of God's word. Here we see the idol of self and its consequences, and in this place of rebellion and isolation comes contempt, dishonor, and disgrace, we're told, in this passage. Conversely, the opposite of that would be, it could be assumed that by valuing the opinions and desires of others, we would not find contempt, but rather affection. Follow? Not contempt and disgrace, but affection and fellowship when we value others' opinions, when we want to hear wisdom from God's Word and from others. And when we seek God's desires and not our own, we enter into worship as opposed to rebellion. Worship as opposed to rebellion. Not isolation, but fellowship, and not disgrace, but honor and a good reputation. Now, this, this word desire, we see this, his own desire. He's following his own desire. But I think we need to ask, what is God's desire. We, hear, we think about that a lot as Christians. What is God's will? What does God desire for me? Who does he want me to be? What does he want me to do? These are questions we should ask ourselves. Matthew 9, 13, Jesus speaking. Jesus speaking again to the religious leaders of the day. He says, go and learn what this means. I desire, this is what God desires. I desire mercy and not sacrifice for i came to call the right not for i came not to call the righteous but sinners james 213 
states simply, mercy triumphs over judgment. Bless you. <laughs> mercy overcomes our desire to judge others, to condemn others, to elevate ourselves above God. In truth, it debases and disgraces ourselves. That's what the Bible constantly is telling us, particularly in Proverbs, that by humbling ourselves, we elevate ourselves. By elevating ourselves, we debase ourselves. We humiliate ourselves. In God's eyes and often in the eyes of the people around us. Let me, I'm going to move on to the next few verses. And I love the word pictures in this, in this passage. It's verses 4 through 8. The words of a man's mouth are deep waters. The fountain of wisdom is a bubbling brook. It is not good to be partial to the wicked or to deprive the righteous of justice. A fool's lips walk into a fight, and his mouth invites a beating. A fool's mouth is his ruin, and his lips are a snare to his soul. The words of a whisperer are like delicious morsels. They go down into the inner parts of the body. Such a vivid picture, isn't it? These delicious morsels. But we start out with this contrast between deep waters and a bubbling brook. Deep waters elicit images of darkness, mystery, and danger. These unfathomable depths, these mysterious depths, we still haven't explored all the bottom of the ocean. They say we know more about the moon than we know about our own ocean bottom. There's these mysterious creatures down there. These pictures come back sometimes where there's a sub, and you're like, what in the world is that under there? <laughs> like things of nightmares, right? These crushing depths. The prophet Jonah cried from the stomach of the great fish. The waters closed over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped around my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. So Jonah likens these deep waters that he was literally in. Some, we can debate if it was a fish, if it was a whale or whatever. But what we know, like sperm whales in particular, have been found with men in them. They have swallowed people before. Sperm whales go to extreme depths. They've brought up these giant squids they found in their guts, and you know, thousands of feet deep, literally. They're one of the deepest diving creatures, and that they come all the way back up to the surface. Some people have speculated that's the kind of animal that swallowed Jonah. Who knows? But he likens these deep waters to the pit. This symbolic place in the Bible that is a place of separation from God, a place of judgment. So that's those deep waters. That's this imagery we're getting there. But the bubbling brook, I think we all have a picture in our minds, a bubbling brook. It elicits this image of life, of joy, and refreshment. A partner verse to these passages is in Proverbs 20, verse 5, and Kind of coming at it from a different angle, he says, the purpose in a man's heart is like deep water, but a man of understanding will draw it out. 
And there's always this connection in Scripture between our words and our hearts. And we've, I've mentioned this verse a couple times. Jesus says, it's out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks. This verse speaks of a man, this, this one I just quoted from verse 20, of a man that's willing to examine himself, who's willing to investigate, to draw out, to explore their motives and intents in the light of God's word, as opposed to isolating themselves in the abyss of their own making. Verses 6 and 7 speaks of violent consequences of foolish speech. You're going to walk into a fight. You know, I've been that kind of person where my mouth would get me literally into fights. And I've suffered in that exact same way. It's likened to being ruined. And we picture, we've seen these pictures again of Israel, these bombed out buildings. Think about that. That's what your words can do to your life. And that's a, that's a really... Uh, graphic picture. It's likened to a snare, right? His lips are a snare to his soul. This type of snare is not a snare that just trips you up. It's meant to trap you so that you can be skinned alive or eaten or whatever. It's something fatal is what that's saying. And then this verse 8, the slanderous, delicious words that sink again down deep into those deep, dark, dangerous waters. That makes me think of people's secrets, things said in confidence that were so deceivingly sweet that sit at the bottom in the muck. Think of like a beautiful ship with all its polished brass and finery now broken in half and rusted on the bottom. So my wife and I recently visited Virginia and in uh, Newport News, Virginia, is a museum called the Mariner's Museum. And they have a full-size replica of the USS Monitor. You remember the Monitor? That's a uh, Civil War era, one of the first kind of half submarine, had a big round turret on it. Well, they have found that on the bottom of the ocean off of the coast of North Carolina where it sank. And it's in a big vat right now preserved. But they had two... Rep, full-size replicas of the turret as it was found with all its decay, with all its uh, concretions is what it's called, this encrustation of sea life and, and, and all the corrosion that occurs. And then they had a replica of what it looked like when it was brand new. And those two things are radically different. And there was so much you know, beauty and design and craftsmanship and everything. And then you just see it just completely corroded. Now, you're like, where is he going with this? But <laughs> the thing with that, the reason they have the original turret in that vat of that, um, it's a certain pH that they have to, if they bring it up too fast, it, the oxygen will combine with that and it, and it will just rapidly destroy what's left of it. Um, it creates like a sulfuric acid and it'll just start breaking it down and they'll lose this great historical resource, resource that we have. The analogy I'm trying to make is, likewise, these things that lay at the bottom of our hearts, things decaying, things that we shared that we shouldn't have, things that have been shared with us that we shouldn't have listened to, if brought to the surface, they could damage ourselves and others, ruining our witness. 
Does that make that's the picture I'm trying that's the picture I'm getting from from these dark waters and these things causing once magnificent and valued relationships to be broken apart and destroyed. We think, oh, that's buried, that's gone. But the sea, like our hearts, has this incredible way of divulging its secrets, doesn't it? They find things that you would how in the world would they ever find that? These treasure ships and these things and these. The, so when the monitor was good, this is a little more history, I thought this was fascinating. So when the monitor was going down, it had a big lantern that was swinging, and they could see the lantern from the shore, and they, they knew that they were still afloat. And eventually, the lantern went out, and they knew that they had sunk. I mean, this thing looks like a big railroad lantern. It's very low-tech. <laughs> and that was the first thing that they found when they found this wreck. And they have it preserved in that museum. It's sitting there in a case. <laughs> Remarkable, right? How in the world could that be salvaged? That's like our gossip, guys. It will come out in ways that you don't expect it to. And it can make terrible ruin of our lives and the lives of other people and people that we may even love and uh, care for, our friends and our relatives. Now, we're told in Revelation 20 at the final judgment that the sea will give up all its dead that all that stuff that's hidden under there will all come back and all be revealed. Jesus said in Mark 4.22, nothing is hidden except to be made manifest, nor is anything secret except to come to light. That's kind of a terrifying thought, isn't it? Think about that, that there's none of, none of our secrets are secret before God. So let's be careful about things we allow to lurk in the depths of our hearts. Let us not cast overboard other secrets, but rather keep and guard them. To engage not in rebellion and selfishness, but to allow radical self-examination in the light of God's word. To be willing to hear and obey that others may drink from that bubbling brook and not a dark, stagnant sea. I want to continue just for a moment in this topic of words and the tongue and the heart. And it's in uh, Proverbs 18, verses 20 and 21. And it says, From the fruit of a man's mouth his stomach is satisfied. He is satisfied by the yield of his lips. And this is kind of the key verse. Death and life are in the power of the tongue, and those who love it will eat its fruits. Solomon here is using agricultural terms to describe the positive consequences of our confession, our confession, what flows from our hearts. Fruit and yield speaks of harvests, of abundant increase. We see these terms of satisfaction and fullness. And then this, this verse is so stark, death and life in the power of the tongue. And we have to ask ourselves, is that literal? Is that literal? Can we bring life? Can we kill with our words? And the reason I want to focus on this, this verse in the past, and probably even still today, um, is one of many verses that have been kind of co-opted by this prosperity gospel. Prosperity preachers that preach by a positive confession, we can essentially just get what we want. 
Has anybody ever heard any teaching like that? It was real popular kind of in the 90s, but it's still around. It's still around. There's still those, those name it and claim it, as you might have heard. What was it? What, there, was a, there was a blab it and grab it was another one. <laughs> but that verse is one that they would say, well, here's a death and life are in the power of the tongue, saying our tongues have this power to them, right? That we can go to God and get healing, wealth, power, authority. Really interesting to me today, culturally, this same thing is being preached by our celebrity idolization, this celebrity culture, but you know what they call it? Has anybody heard this? Manifest. Manifestation. I'm, I'm going to manifest success in my life. I'm going to speak this. I'm going I'm to wake up in the morning and I'm going to say these things and I'm going to believe it enough and it'll happen. And you've got these multimillionaires that are only millionaires because they're willing to basically prostitute themselves, right? And then they think that they have some special gift, but really they, they're going around preaching this manifestation. I'm going to manifest success, manifest these things in my life. I'm going to personally create whatever I want by believing, by speaking, and confessing those things as reality. And again, there's that verse that says, ask and you'll receive. Jesus would at one point say, ask anything you want and you'll get it. But there's a caveat to that, according to my will, according to the will of God, not the will of ourselves. So whether in the form of Christian or religious teaching, or as a secular New Age philosophy, it's an abomination. It's an abomination. Deuteronomy 32, 39 says, and this is the Lord speaking, this is God speaking, see now that I, even I, am He, and there is no God besides me. I kill and I make alive. I wound and I heal, and there is none that can deliver out of my hand. I mean, that's as plain as it gets. We are not God and cannot manifest anything apart from His will. And it's not, I don't want to get too deep. That's a whole nother study, as we always say. That's a whole nother thing. We could really spend a lot of time on that and get into that. But I, I just want to focus, how do we reconcile those two verses? Because they're both, they're true. They're both true. They're both 100% true at the same time. The simplicity is that our words, our confession, either bring life or death only insofar as to consent to or reject to agree or disagree with His Word, His magnificent, transformative Word, His commandments that brought the world and all its wonders into being, and also particularly the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Word that brings life and resurrection. He gives us the power to choose. And that's the miracle in all that. Make no mistake, it is a life or death choice. Romans 10.9 says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. It's God that saves you though. It's not you by your confession. You're just agreeing with the promise that he's offered to everyone. 1 John 1.15 says, Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him, and he in God. To eat the fruit of life, to be sustained by him forever 
and ever to partake and rejoice in his harvest only takes a word. Only takes a word. That's the power of the tongue that leads to death or life. And that's the macro application. But I know in my own life, we can kill potential or breathe life into daily circumstances again as we agree or disagree with the promises of God and as we walk through this world. God gives us promises of peace and of provision and joy and trial and victory over temptation. And our tongues, again, as, as they reveal our heart, choose to speak words of faith and hope or words of doubt and complaining. This isn't a special power of our own, but simply aligning ourselves with his will and word and trusting in his sovereignty as he describes in Deuteronomy 32. I'm going to bounce back up to Proverbs 18, 10 through 12. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous man runs into it and is safe. A rich man's wealth is his strong city and like a high wall in his imagination. Before destruction, a man's heart is haughty, but humility comes before honor. I think this is a really great, vivid picture of this man running into the tower. Right? We know something bad has happened when you're running. You're not walking, you're running. My, uh, I was sharing this earlier. My dog... Um, got her ear cut, and it keeps bleeding, and we're dealing with that, but when it happened, this just happened last night, and we are running. We are running to get bandages, we're running to get stuff, and we're running to take care of it because it's urgent. We have a fireman in the audience. They don't walk to the fires, right? (laughs) They run to those situations. They run into those dangerous situations. So we see this man here, he has a sense of emergency, of imminent danger, And he's running into the tower that is our Savior. Contrast that with this rich man. He doesn't run at all. He sits behind his high wall. This strong wall that he thinks is there to protect him. That's not as strong as he imagines. The end of which is destruction. But to... One who runs to the Lord is safe. So in the book of Daniel, we're invited to a banquet. Belshazzar, the Babylonian king, is feasting with his friends and concubines. And we get this image of debauchery and drunkenness. They're blaspheming God. They're drinking from sacred vessels stolen from the temple in Jerusalem. During that party, the armies of the Medes and Persians were amassing outside the Babylonian walls. Now, these walls were thought impenetrable. They were a wonder of the ancient world. And so Belshazzar is sitting literally behind his high walls with all his wealth, with all his friends, drinking out of these sacred vessels. Suddenly, a hand appears and begins to write on those very walls. I don't know if it was an exterior wall, but he's writing on the wall that he's trusting in. And he says, and and this is Daniel's interpretation of that writing, Mene, God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Tekel, 
you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Perez, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians, and that very night the walls were breached and Belshazzar was killed. So it is when we trust in the walls of our own making instead of running to him, our strong, reliable, unassailable tower. Such a vivid picture, such a perfect illustration of what these Proverbs are saying. There is no other secure place to go in this world, regardless of what we've built up in our own lives. It can all be gone like that. And I hate to, this is a jarring shift, but we only have 15 minutes left. So we're going to move through this fast. But another theme that I really saw just really popping out through 17, at the end of 17, but a number of, of Proverbs in chapter 19 deal with the poor. And it's these contrasts that he keeps pulling out and contrasting with the rich, but also with the wicked. And I just wanted to just bounce through those and um, see if we can get through those, those, those Proverbs and, and come to a conclusion there. So there's a few of them. Proverbs 18.23, the poor uses entreaties, but the rich answer roughly. And this speaks of one who is not able to force his cause using entreaties. That means to, to uh, resort to asking nicely, essentially, to beg, if even, if you will, to plead his cause, which takes humility. And then we see the other, the rich, answering roughly one who is entitled, who views themselves as powerful or deserving and is demanding their way. The next one is in Proverbs 19.1. Better is a poor person who walks in his integrity than one who is crooked in speech and is a fool. So we see integrity versus crooked speech. Crooked speech is a, a term used for dishonesty, for being deceptive in your speech. And we can assume the one of crooked speech has used deception to gain wealth, while the poor man is poor because he has refused to lie and cheat his way to success. He has integrity. Better to be poor with your integrity. Wealth, this is in uh, verse 4, Proverbs 19.4. Wealth brings many new friends, but a poor man is deserted by his friend. You know, back, back way back, me and all my buddies, we lived in this big house with a bunch of, you know, with each other, a bunch of guys. We all knew when each person got some money. <laughs> we knew it. Oh, so-and-so got his unemployment check. Now we can go out and he's going to, you know, and it was always like that on a much, on a really kind of, we were all poor, but if someone got a uh, unemployment check or got a tax return or something like that, it was on, right? They were rich for that week at least. But here we see the rich being popular, these new friends, friends who would like to benefit from that wealth, as opposed to one who is poor, who is deserted by even his only friend when he has nothing to offer. So we see that even that contrast, friends and friend. Proverbs 19, 6 and 7, many seek the favor of a generous man, and everyone is a friend to a man who gives gifts. All a poor man's brothers hate him. How much more do his friends go far from him? He pursues them with words, but does not have them. And that's an elaboration on that, on that previous proverb. Um, 
Now, it doesn't specify that this gener generous man, the one giving gifts, is rich, but it's implied. It's difficult to be generous when you have barely enough to survive. His brothers hate him. I think his brothers hate him because he's probably always hitting them up for money. Right? There's always that one that's always trying to, hey, how you been? I haven't talked to you in a while. Can I borrow? You know, and you know what they're getting to. And they're probably sick of hearing from him. Maybe mom and dad have always had to bail him out, which makes them jealous. The friends run away when they always have to pick up the tab when you can't contribute. You might call them up. You might hit them up on social. But again, you're pursuing them, but you don't have them. They're not answering until you get a job or you pay them back. Proverbs 19.17, Whoever is generous to the poor lends to the Lord, and he will repay them for his deed. He will repay them for his deed. Here we see how we can be different. It's kind of a, it's kind of a, a new angle that, that Solomon brings in here. How we can be different, not running away, but helping. Not despising one in need, but being generous. And then lastly, in Proverbs 19.22, what is desired in a man is steadfast love, and a poor man is better than a liar. And now we get to the end of the matter. What is truly desired by our Father? Steadfast love and honesty over the pursuit of wealth. And that's not how our world sees it. I think if we interviewed a lot of people on the street, they would readily choose to be rich over being honest and loving in a real and sacrificial way, denying themselves for the benefit of others. So to summarize all these proverbs, I just kind of put together a summary. We see the rich and how they're characterized. They answer roughly. They're entitled. They have crooked speech, which means dishonest, and particularly for gain. I think that's the context here, for gain. Who is essentially a fool. They're popular. They have a lot of new friends. Those who seek their favor, whom, but it's, it's those people he has to continually bribe and flatter to keep around. Then we contrast that with this poor person who's using entreaties, as it says, one who's humble, perhaps forced to beg, but has integrity, abandoned, lonely, despised even by those close to him, but remains steadfast in his love for others and for God despite his poverty. There's a third character that's inserted in here, the one who's generous to the poor, perhaps one who's been poor themselves and who can relate in that situation or just one who is compassionate and humble, realizing all they have is a gift from God. And we have to ask, of these two, which one most resembles Christ? Which one sounds like someone who is close to God, who knows Him and walks with Him? And yet so many in our society trend towards that rich man. That's what we see so much on TV and in the media. And I want to really break this down a little further. Riches are not necessarily financial. What about riches of position or authority? 
an entitlement that causes us to be harsh with our subordinates or hold favors over people's heads? What about some perceived entitlement or privilege that may come from a family name, a race, or some other societal measurement? Likewise, being poor is not always financial. There are many very, very rich that are rich people that are also very poor in spirit. The Lord would say, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. One can certainly be rich in this life and be humble, generous, compassionate, and needy before the Lord. And always, I think with the Lord, it's always about the heart. It's always about the heart. So, we don't need, this isn't some social justice message where we're trying to, you know, I saw recently there was a man, I think he was with the United Auto Workers, that had a shirt, shirt that said, eat the rich. And that's this populist saying that is used in a lot of protests, eat the rich. Well, it comes to find out, this guy's also very rich himself, but he's wearing the eat the rich. This isn't a message for us to judge those who have more than us or to look down on those who have less than us because we don't know what's in the heart. God knows what's in the heart. We're looking at these characterizations that have to do with how we perceive ourselves, how we act towards others in light of whatever that richness, riches may be or whatever our poverty may be. And I'll tell you what, there's a lot of poor people that are straight up sinners, right? Right? I mean, being poor doesn't make you righteous. We all know that. So, so that's not what we're talking about. But, but, but truly, I think sometimes uh, later on in Proverbs 30, we're going to go through a verse where, God's, where um, the prayer is, um, give me neither poverty nor riches, but give me what I need, is a, is a paraphrase. Lest I be poor and deny you, or lest, I, or lest I be rich and deny you, or lest I be poor and steal. And that level is, is always fluctuating, especially in our culture. But to have what we need and to be content in that, that's the message. But as we go through these verses, if we're answering others harshly, is it because we're perceiving ourselves higher than we should? If we're dishonest, trying to get something from somebody? If we're... Um, Using others for our own gain, that's what this is talking about, at whatever societal strata you might be at. But Jesus taught in Matthew 16, 26, what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeit his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? The answer to this rhetorical question is, of course, nothing. There's nothing we can gain here. No gift, no price we could ever pay that could begin to rival the costly gift we've received. That's true humility, understanding that, coming to God in faith, understanding what we've received, primarily eternal life, salvation of our soul, escaping that judgment that we deserve. And that gift was obtained with nothing less than the immaculate, priceless blood of our innocent Savior compared to which we are all in desperate, abject poverty. That's true humility. That's true poverty. That's being poor in spirit. 
regardless knowing that whatever we have here is temporary and that we're looking for the you know to be with him in his kingdom forever and ever because of what he did not because of we, what we were able to buy in a sense so lord Man, that was just a whirlwind. So many verses, so much content, and I thank you that we're, uh, that we're at this point where we can just come to you and, um, and pray, Lord, for your spirit to continue to teach us. Lord, that's what we want. We want humble and teachable hearts to guard other secrets. Those deep waters, Lord, that... Um, we don't want to be stagnant. We want to be that bubbling brook, that, that life that comes out uh, from being your children as your spirit flows through us. So, Lord, we offer you our lives. We offer you ourselves again here tonight. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the depth of it. We thank you for um, just that we can read and study and come closer to you and that wonderful gift you've given us. We pray as we go forth this week, um, just use us for your kingdom. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you very much. Have a good night. Thank you.